I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Peggy Orenstein. On this episode of Harper Academic Calling, we're happy to welcome back to our show Peggy Orenstein, author of the bestsellers Cinderella Ate My Daughter and Girls and Sex, for her latest book, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. Boys and Sex draws on comprehensive interviews with young men who self-identify across the sexuality spectrum, as well as with psychologists, academics, and other experts to talk about young men's experiences with sex and intimacy with all their complexities and nuances. As with Girls and Sex, we're pleased to offer educators using Boys and Sex in their classrooms a free teaching guide for the book. Visit our website, harperacademic.com, click on the Teaching Guides tab at the top of the page to access the file. Available guides are arranged alphabetically by book title. Boys and Sex is available now in hardcover from Harper. On the phone with us today, we have Peggy Orenstein, author of the bestsellers Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Girls and Sex, and most recently to the New York Times bestsellers list, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. Peggy, thank you so much for joining us again on Harper Academic Calling. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. So Girls and Sex was a bestseller that explored the realities and myths for young women navigating uh, their sexuality and sex in general. Uh, well, why did you both feel that you wanted to and needed to go back and sort of have the other half of the conversation with boys this time for your book? <laughs> well, honestly, I didn't. I, I was really resistant to it. My, my Everywhere I went after I published Girls and Sex, people said, um, the parents, girls, boys themselves, and when are you going to have the other half of the conversation? And I kept saying, oh, you know, I think it should be had, but it's somebody else's job. But the more I kind of thought about it, the more I started to realize that nobody was talking to boys and nobody was really listening to boys in a very new era. And so as I was kind of contemplating that and doing some preliminary interviews to see what that would be like, the Me Too allegations began. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the you know, scope of sexual harassment and misconduct and assault across all sectors of society by men young and old became so apparent and we had this mandate to reduce sexual violence. But it also seemed to me a really interesting moment in a positive way where because of those questions, maybe we could engage young men in conversation about sex, about intimacy, about masculinity, about gender dynamics, and so that felt really exciting to me, mm-hmm. um, and that set me ticking. And then the other piece was I was really afraid that guys wouldn't talk because, mm-hmm. you know, so much a reputation for chattiness. And I worried that I would have whole transcripts that consisted of, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Blank. Yeah. And plus, I kind of look—I look like I, I could be their mom. So I, 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 I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to do it. But when I—but the biggest surprise to me of this book, and I think maybe more than any specific conclusion, 
was that the guys were so eager to talk and to explore their lived reality and the contradictions around sex and intimacy and masculinity um, and that they were such amazing and sophisticated narrator narrators of their interior lives and I really think in the end I just felt like you know nobody was asking them and what I was able to do and, and surface was just you know giving them space mm -hmm. to explore these ideas that of course they were thinking about but that nobody was really asking them about. It seemed to me when I was reading the book that part of the surprise for you and I think to some extent to to people who read the book was just how forthcoming they were and, and at times um, how very excited they seemed to finally be able to to talk about about the things that you were know, asking them about. I, know. I was really true and even I mean there's one scene and this is sort of like skipping way ahead in, mm -hmm. in the conversation but there's a scene in the book where can I can I swear? Yeah. Is that okay? okay. Yeah go for I it. I want to make sure. Um, so there's a scene in the book where I'm talking to this guy, uh, a guy I've been interviewing for a while, but we're having a Skype conversation, he's, and he calls himself a feminist fuckboy mm. um, for, for, because he feels um, that on one hand he's very conscious and scrupulous about things like sexual consent, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily behaving ethically. You know, like yeah. he, he still would use partners as disposable, he would still, um, the, the hookup culture on his campus, the, the ratio of women to men was really skewed so that put guys in kind of control of the culture and calling the shots and you know me, we, we had talked a lot about that and and he was sort of coming to another place and while we were talking um this other guy texted in who was a senior in high school out looking at the colleges where he'd been accepted and he was somebody who really valued connection in his sexual and intimate relationships and he wrote, you know, he texted me and said, like, WTF with hookup culture down here. It's like, it's like an orgy. Should I just go to Bone Town and worry about an emotional connection? I mean, in case you wondered, you know, if they were blunt with me. Yes, they were. <laughs> um, should I just go to Bone Town and worry about the connection later? Or should I forget about all that? And so what I did was I read that text to the guy that I was talking to on Skype. And they ended up having this conversation through me mm -hmm. with one another. Um, about you know personal authenticity, about status, sex as status seeking, about feeling empty versus feeling whole, all these kinds of things. And I know because I stayed in touch with that boy that that conversation helped him as he went into his college experience figure out what he wanted as opposed to what the culture was telling him he ought to want. And I thought, you know, they were strangers to one another. They were strangers really to me too in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. But they had this incredible conversation, and what if we could create ways or find pathways for guys to be able to really have these authentic conversations with one another? What would that be like for them? What would that change? Yeah, and I think one of the things that made that particular moment interesting to me and sort of thinking about the, the conversations that young men had with each other was this question of public narratives what kind of and it, yeah. that goes from everything from you know the shows that they're watching um, and how they relate sex and intimacy or rape in those shows how they how they see both representations of men and women but how can we change right. the public narratives that exist to make 
to make feelings okay, right? And it sounds like such a such a weird thing to say that you think sort of gets covered in like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, right? But but oh, how yeah, right? how do we create public narratives that make feelings and empathy, you know, okay things for boys to talk about and to express? I can't tell you how to how to change the you know the whole culture, but I do think that one thing we've done a much better job with girls. Yeah, um, I feel like you know we, we recognized. I mean, I wrote about girls for 25 years mm-hmm. before I wrote this book on boys, and over that period, I've seen this like edifice come up of support in terms of um, media messages because we recognize as a culture that the messages that barrage girls from the time they are tiny are harmful to them. They're harmful to their body image, they're harmful to their self-esteem, they reduce them to their to this kind of sexualized idea of sexuality, they're bad for their mental health, all these things we know. And so we have done a really good job of creating a, a discussion of counter-narratives, of giving them a lens um, that they can use to critique that culture and perhaps in doing so resist some of its more harmful messages. It's not perfect and the culture keeps growing and changing, Mm -hmm. but we are aware and we try. Boys, meanwhile, we say nothing. And they are swimming in that same stew of messages about masculinity, messages about femininity, message about male sexual entitlement, female sexual availability, you know, all those things. We say nothing. And I would argue that, you know, in some ways, the temperature has turned up higher for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, thing one, is to think about how we can construct um, a, the kind of counter narrative we do with girls uh, around media for boys. Yeah. But also, you know, when you talk about the feelings piece, yeah, I mean, that was the the, the wall that boys would talk about. The um, they would talk about training themselves not to feel, training themselves not to cry, putting their feelings behind a wall, except for happiness and anger, which were the only two allowed. And I think you know we have to become obviously more aware of that process. But also, even when, and, and this is, you know, not going to help your 22-year-old necessarily, but when you have your little boy, um, there's a lot of research that shows that boys grow up in a more impoverished emotional environment than girls from the from the jump. Mm-hmm. That that mothers of infants use less emotional language with girls, with boys, excuse me, um, than they do with girls. That um, uh, adults shown videos of infants surprised by a jack-in-the-box are more likely to attribute um, anger to that infant if they're told first that 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 infant is a boy. So there's this constant, you know, narrowing and reinforcing of anger for boys as being the only appropriate emotion with which to express the whole bucket of feelings that involves grief or sadness or heartbreak or betrayal or surprise or fear or any of these things. Um, So when we have little boys being able to broaden that and say, gee, you know, it seems like you're feeling sad, to name it, you know, or say, wow, that must be frustrating, or to be able to step back and when, you're, when your little one is expressing anger and think about what's underneath that anger and name that, those are really important ways of expanding boys' emotional vocabulary. Starting right now is a um, new initiative by some folks in Hollywood and at UCLA to try to expand the the representations of men in media mm-hmm. so that they they do have more of those images to look at and, and it's not all about um, you know the sort of typical 
dominant, aggressive, superhero-y or, or action figure um, type representation. It's called Center for Scholars and Storytellers, and they're doing a new um, push on that that's sort of similar to the Gina Davis push for girls that I'm really excited about. That's super great. That's super great to know. Throughout your book, you talk about, you talk with guys across many spectrums. You talk to heteronormative guys, uh, queer and trans guys. Uh, you talk to non-white guys. You talk to, to, to black guys, people of color. Um, what do you think each group of guys can learn from each other's experiences? Because not all of these different types of guys have the same sort of pressures. Um, so what do you think right. they could each learn from each other? Yeah, I mean, for sure, guys are not guys are not guys. And, and it was something that, you know, I really learned doing Girls and Sex is that I, I didn't break people out quite so much and talk about the ways that ethnicity or um, sexual orientation or gender identity mediated some of these messages. And it's important to do so. And so um, one thing was with, with um, gay boys in particular, uh, they were a really interesting model of um, consent. Mm -hmm. And they were much more able to navigate the parameters of, of sexual and, and you know, discuss what those should be of a sexual experience than um, straight people. And, and that was partly out of need. You know, they, it wasn't obvious for them who was going to be doing what with whom and how. Right. They just had to learn how to talk about it. But it was, uh, it was very interesting. And it didn't mean that there weren't, you know, non-consensual issues or all these other things, but it, it, it still was a, a much better model. And, and as one gay boy that I talked to said to me, you know, I don't know why straight guys have this resistance to the consent conversation, because like when we start talking about consent, that means we're gonna have sex, you know, that's great. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's good, but also Dan Savage who's a sex columnist in Seattle talked about the um, four magic words that, um, gay guys will use at the start of a sexual encounter, which are, what are you into? Mm -hmm. And I sort of loved that because it was like this open-ended question where that rules anything in and anything out, as opposed to in a heterosexual context when we talk about it, we tend to talk about consent as a series of questions that a man or a boy asks, asks a woman or a girl that they then respond to with yes or no. And that's not really what it should be about. So that's a sort of lovely shift. And since writing about that in the book, I've been thinking more about it. And I realized that if you put that question, that magic words question, in a heterosexual context with young people, and a guy said, what are you into? The girl might well respond, I have no earthly idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And right? And that's because of the kind of socialization that I wrote about in girls and sex, and it's the way that those two books end up being in conversation with one another so much, and the ways that, you know, that we learn to be guys and we learn to be women, the ways that that can undermine the kind of mutually gratifying, you know, authentic connections and, and positive sexual experiences and, and, you know, pleasurable sexual experiences that we want young people to have. In thinking about the different kinds of boys that you talked with for boys and sex, I, I think probably the ones that broke my heart the most was the chapter on um, African-American young men. How 
how they have the context just seems so much bigger um, in terms of what could go potentially wrong. But then you think about these young black men who you talk to in the in the book, who realize just the weight that they carry in terms of right. of socialization and and the potential for things to go really really bad for them if something gets misunderstood right. in an intimate relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so the, the African American boys that I spoke with were guys who went to predominantly white institutions, as mm -hmm. a college must do, um, and they were really acutely aware of a combination of being um, hypersexualized, and that made them, you know, they, they could be like the they were always seen as the coolest dude in the room, but that could flip really fast into something being seen as a predator and. They carry the whole, you know, history of um, false accusation against African American men as a tool of social control, and white, and whereas, you know, rape itself, actual rape, is is a tool of social control for all women everywhere, mm -hmm. and those things can feel in conflict, especially for white feminists on campus who are trying to change um, a culture of misconduct and assault um, that can feel particularly threatening. And we, you know, and and African American guys are more likely to be um, accused and brought up in charges, not necessarily because they are more likely to assault somebody, but because they, whiteness is protective mm -hmm. and elitism is protective. And so it may be more that young women, particularly white women, are more willing to see and call out behavior um, in an African American partner than they would be if the partner was white. So guys carried a lot of, African-American guys carried a lot of stress and, you know, and um, anxiety, mm -hmm. not only about all the other stuff that they had stress and anxiety about, yeah. about, you know, walking down the street or, you know, pulling out their ID or whatever, yeah. or being African-American. They were also carrying this, um, you know, tremendous stress and anxiety um, around their social interaction. So one of the guys that I talked with said, look, I'm not going to go party with a bunch of drunk white kids because anything can go wrong. And if I'm the only black guy in the room, then I'm the only black guy in the room. So there was that whole piece. Mm -hmm. And then I also started um, conceptualizing African-American masculinity and Asian-American masculinity as sort of flip sides of a coin where white masculinity was this neutral um, thing, you know, this neutral thing that was controlling that toss. So the, the African American guys, as I said, had hypersexuality, but also potential, you know, predatory sexuality um, projected onto them. And Asian American guys had projected onto them asexuality and emasculation, and that caused its own kind of um, anxiety. So they would talk about things like one guy said he had matched with a girl on Tinder, and they went back and forth, and he said, you know, then she said, um, I, we could be friends, but no offense, I don't date Asian guys. And he just turned to me and said, how is that no offense? Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to me not only to surface the pressures that guys of color were under and the ways that our, those biases and stereotypes and racism are still um, affecting how they go through their social lives, but also the ways that today's generation of, um, of white kids often sees themselves as very um, socially conscious, very aware, very um, 
much um, trying to combat ideas about racial injustice and stereotype and bias, but they leave a lot of that at the door mm -hmm. when they go into their social and sexual experiences and default to a kind of gendered racism or sexual racism that we have to question in ourselves as, as white folks as well. Yeah, absolutely. The next last chapter of the book is called uh, A Better Man, and it tells what I thought, I mean, this chapter just completely blew me away. It tells the story of um, Anwen and Samir. Struggled to even come up with a question to, to ask about it because the, I just had I, I just had so many questions in in my mind because I was as I as I read it and then went back to that chapter I was Im impressed and struck and amazed by her strength and her ability to take the time she needed to be able to articulate what what she needed him to do to start to to make things right um, and in yeah. his uh, his awareness and his ability to, to go and do the work, basically. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about the two of them and, and what talking with them was like? Right, and, you know, that story un unfolds over four years, and I think that that, you know, what she went through during those four years was to get to that place was a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they, and so I really struggled with how to address issues of campus sexual assault. And I talk a lot in the book about sort of the false assumptions that guys are socialized into that make them, you know, that allow consent to be elastic for them or allow them to not see what they're doing or, or believe themselves to be doing something that's totally fine when it's not totally fine at all um, and all of that. But I, I thought, you know, what can I add to this? And so what I, what I landed on was um, this pair, Anwan and Samir, who who have um, who, who goes he he assaults her and they end up going through a restorative justice um, process that allows for um, a lot of healing and justice and for her and also accountability responsibility and transformation for him and it was just I want you know it's it's, just, it's another tool in thinking about how we can approach campus assault that would really. You know, it is after the fact, and I would rather that we approach this so that it doesn't happen in the first place, but um, that can perhaps offer a pathway um, both to true accountability and, and to true justice and healing. And so Anwan and Samir, um, you know, it's just one of the – what happens to them is like an ordinary Saturday night at the frat party, and, you know, things just kind of go south, and she ends up in his room, and he – um, forces her to have oral sex and he's thinking that he's just being a teacher and a nice guy and showing an inexperienced person you know what to do mm -hmm. and she her experience is he is holding my head down and not letting me up and that is sexual assault that is trauma mm -hmm. um, and so that happens and it's sort of everything and it's, and, and the chapter was I, I really appreciated being able to do it from both their perspectives. I tell the story from his side, I tell the story from her side, because it gives that spin on that he said, she said that we so often hear, like, you know, well, it's just he said, she said. Well, it shows sort of how that unfolds and where that can go and how he ultimately recognizes through various things that happened in the story that what he did was assault 
And what happens at that point when he recognizes that his assumptions were false, that he's, and he liked her, mm -hmm. he was not trying to hurt her, he did not believe he had hurt her, because of all the things that he had learned walking into that room. Um, but that doesn't mean he didn't do it, and that doesn't mean he doesn't have to take accountability for it or be responsible for it. So his recognition of that and kind of falling apart and thinking, oh my gosh, if I did something like this, I must be a monster, because only monsters would do something like this. Uh, you know, a good guy can't possibly have done this, but I am a good guy, and I did do this, so what does that mean? You know, and like going through all of that, and then they go through this process um, with a trained facilitator to understand what happened, to tell both their sides, for him to recognize what happened, for, him, for them to together come up with what he needs to do to take accountability and make amends. And there's a real temptation in reading this story where he truly does become a better human being, not just a better man, but a better human being. Um, and, and part of me, at, at sort of towards the end of the story, I said, you know, it's really tempting to say Samir's a unicorn. <laughs> you know, like, who could be like this guy? Yeah. Um, but the truth is, where he starts out, he's just a typical dude. You know, he yeah. grew up watching Van Wilder movies and porn, and that's what he learned about sex. And his uncles who told him that, you know, it's not a good night out unless you're grinding on some girl and getting her phone number. He was coercive with his high school girlfriend who he liked very much. Um, he wanted to just get in a frat, get drunk, party, have sex, you know, with hookup. And so there was nothing unusual about Samir, um, except the fact that he had the opportunity to really look at his behavior in the eye and reckon with it. And I think that that's, too, what a lot of what was going on with a number of the guys that I spoke with in the book was that they were trying to reckon with things that created a kind of dissonance in their head about who they were and how they behaved. First, what, what I think was really, really hopeful and exciting and important about doing the book at this moment was that I think if I had talked to some of these guys in the same situation five years ago, ten years ago, they wouldn't have even thought to question any of their behavior. They wouldn't even be wrestling with these things. They wouldn't have felt any sense of contradiction or curiosity about either their behavior or the socialization or their friend's behavior or any of it. And now they're really engaged with that and really trying to think about it, whether it's issues around consent, whether it's issues about ethics, whether it's issues around masculinity, whether it's issues around, you know, the impact of porn and media use, all of that. Like they really wanted to engage and think about what that meant to them and what it would mean to construct a masculine identity and have the kinds of relationships, you know, whether they were encounters that lasted for five minutes or relationships that lasted 50 years, that really would be mutually gratifying and mutually fulfilling and reciprocal and what they needed to do in order to get there. What kind of new masculinity or new hopes do you have for guys and how guys relate to intimacy and sex and sex culture in, in the new era that we find ourselves in? Well, I think it is all that I just said. And I, and, and I think that the way to get there is to engage guys. I mean, I sort of stopped a little bit using the phrase like toxic masculinity because mm -hmm. I, don't, I, I think that that can be very difficult for younger boys, um, you know, talking more about precarious masculinity or fragile masculinity or hazardous masculinity, you know, those words feel, I think, less less loaded to them yeah. in, in opening up. But, I mean, it's toxic masculinity is really useful in terms of, like, naming it and exposing it, but I think it's not necessarily that helpful 
for guys in promoting positive change. Um, so, you know, I talk a lot at the end about the kinds of conversations that we need to be having with with guys to, to get to another place that involve things like, um, you know, allowing for emotional accessibility and, and vulnerability and looking at, you know, why we're not getting there. Uh, talking about consent, yes, mm-hmm. but consent is really just a starting point. We have to talk about, you know, um, positive sexual engagement, reciprocity, pleasure, including female pleasure, you know, making all these dynamics. I think we've done a really good job, again, with girls, of making gender dynamics that shape them and can harm them or at least, you know, that they can unthinkingly embody, um, making that visible. We have not done that job with boys. Mm -hmm. And I think having these discussions and and what I hope that that boys and sex would do for guys themselves, for, you know, college and high school students would be to make those dynamics visible, to have the, the voices of boys in conversation with one another in the book, in conversation in a way with the two books with girls and sex and boys and sex, but mostly in conversation with the reader so that maybe it could help guys get beyond that kind of guy talk and open up more authentic dialogue amongst themselves or at least in their own heads and hearts. Perfect. Well, Peggy, thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.